Amen. As you're seated, I do invite you to turn to Psalm 37 with me as we look through this uh, next psalm. I've uh, done three psalms with you, and we're on to our fourth now, and I'll be with you for the next couple of weeks also, and we'll cover psalms those days too. This one is 40 verses long, which I know may seem uh, intimidating, but we will run straight through it, and it will make, I hope, a lot of sense to you. As you read through it just casually, uh, it sort of sounds like a lot of the same ideas just over and over again, and that's because it is a lot of the same ideas over and over again, but they are organized in a way that has a, a real impact on us if we're paying attention to it as we go through it. And they're, you know, these psalms are written for corporate worship. They're written, David writes them, so that the congregation will come together and sing them, and in singing them, not necessarily process analytically as we're going to do today, all the contents of it, but just be pressed into this truth that reveals itself half emotionally and half intellectually as we go through it. And that's what happens in this psalm. And so I was really happy to get in the, get in the truck and drive out here, beautiful morning, just a few clouds and sunshine in my eyes. And I'll talk about the sunshine in a little bit and uh, what it was like coming out here. But I was almost disappointed to hear y'all were willing to have church without me for the last two weeks. Uh, but, but I'm glad to be back with you this morning. And so we're going to jump right into it. And let me just uh, prepare you for it in this way. The psalm uh, does have a structure to it that stands out when you're reading it in Hebrew uh, that's fairly obvious, and it'll be fairly obvious even in English, but I want to draw your attention to it so you'll understand why I divide the psalm the way I do. I'm, just, I'm not just arbitrarily choosing themes that I want to talk about and then bringing them up. They're actually built into the way the psalm is given to us. And so for you to see it, you would notice in verses, so first of all, the entire psalm is written in couplets and pairs of couplets. So you can figure out what that is, just a couple of things being said at a time, and then you're on to the next verse, right? So everything's paired up like that, except for three parts of the psalm that really stand out having some kind of triplet, having some kind of set of three phrases that are brought together. And one time it's three couplets that are brought together. So in verses 14 and 15, you have the first example of this. And by the way, the attention is also drawn to this because the whole psalm is written, and this is part of how Hebrew poetry works, they do this a lot in their poetry, it's written so that each, every other verse, and so each little section, is the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And this psalm goes all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. So in the same way, if, you, if you're familiar with the psalms, you know Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, that psalm is written so that every eight verses is the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and each of those eight verses all begin with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, this is similar to that, not identical to that, but similar to that, but it's just two verses at a time, and it's just the first verse of each of the two begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's really obvious what the structure of the psalm is because it's you know, if we were saying it in English, it's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and you can just see what the next idea is because it starts with the next letter of the alphabet. For them, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, He, and so on through the Hebrew alphabet. So that's how you recognize where these things begin. So in, I'm saying all of that again so to help us know it's easy to read a psalm and just have a feeling 
and sort of say, oh man, you know, when I read that verse, I thought of grandma's cookies and the smell, and so I'm going to share that with the congregation. And all of us kind of feel that way reading the Psalms. We read them very devotionally, but there, there is real content to these things, and they deal with some of the hardest parts of our lives, the most important parts of our lives. That's why they're Psalms. It's easy to sit down with someone and just tell them a fact. But to reach into the very depth of their heart and deal with what's most difficult, you need something that gets through the barriers. And that's what art does, that's what poetry does, and that's what the Psalms do. That's why he does it. Uh, I have a a very close friend who uh, wrote the words just the other day, and this is a person who is a, a very committed believer throughout all of his life, knows Scripture like the back of his hand, and has lived a long faithful life in Christ and uh, said the other day that he was having a hard time just believing that there is a God, or if there is a God, that we ought to trust him because so many bad things have happened to him in his life lately. And this is, and a lot of bad things have happened to him in his life. And you could go along and pat him on the back and quote a bunch of verses that he could quote right back to you, and they don't address what's going on inside of his heart. The Psalms do. They ask exactly those same questions. Why is this happening? How long are you going to wait, O Lord? And so, as we read this psalm, we get that same concept. So, it's going to show up in three different segments that reveal themselves in these triplets or these sets of three phrases. So, in verses 14 and 15, you'll see the first example. This is hate, by the way, the letter H, basically, in Hebrew. So, the wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow. I'm just going to read you these three sections first these three ends to the sections first so that we can observe it as we're going through it. Verses 14 and 15, the wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. The first section of the psalm ends there. So verses 1 through 15 are all culminating in this extra verse that's given to us in verses 14 and 15. Then verses 16 through 26 culminate in the triplet especially that's in verse 25. It works together with 26, but I'm just going to read you verse 25 right now. And this is noon, N, if we were in English, the letter N in the, in the alphabet as we're going through the psalm. I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. That's triplet. So now we've got a completely different theme, and that closes the second section of the psalm. The last section of the psalm ends with the last verse of the psalm, Psalm 40, in three phrases. The Lord shall help them and deliver them. And these really are three couplets. The Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them. And then one phrase by itself to make the poem, this, this part of the poem unique, and this is the point for us, because they trust him. And that's what we'll arrive at. So I had, I had to make a choice because it's 40 verses long. I either have to spend my time going through the whole psalm with you just explaining why it says what it says or just explaining what it says. So I went with the second option. We're just going to explain what it says, which means we're going to read it slightly out of order within each segment. So we're going to read verses 1 through 15, and I'll tell you what we're reading as we're reading it, but we're just going to cover one section at a time. So in verses 1 through 15, you have this irony about the wicked that's going to show up. And I'll say it this way, that truth 
returns to the wicked. I don't mean truth in some abstract, principled, or technical sense. I mean it like reality, you know, the reality of life, the truth, the reality that all of us are going to have to confront at some point will always return to the wicked. That's the point that we're going to see in verses 1 through 15, and it's going to show up in about four different ways. He uses four different kinds of truths that he gives us to arrive at that point. The first, look at verse 1, and you'll see this, and you'll see why I'm lumping them together. Verse 1, do not fret because of evildoers. So first he says to us, Don't be worried about it. He tells us what our attitude should be like toward the wicked. And also let me clarify that as I say this throughout the psalm, the wicked are not the fang-toothed bloodmongers who go around at night and devour our children. The wicked are just those people who are not right with God in any way whatsoever. doesn't matter. doesn't matter how moderate it is. doesn't matter what it looks like. doesn't matter whether we admire them or don't admire them. It's just somebody who's not right with God. And I'm just going to use the wording of the psalm to say the wicked because the category seems so harsh, and yet we'll see by the end of the psalm it's a very inclusive category. So the wicked, we're, what's our attitude toward them supposed to be? We're not supposed to worry about them. Don't fret because of the evildoers. This is in verse 1. Don't be envious because of those who work sin or iniquity. In verse 7, at the end of the verse, do not, and you can see it says the same thing, do not fret because of him who prospers in the way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. In verse 8, we're told to cease from anger and forsake wrath and do not fret because it only causes harm. You can see the the whole idea here is we need to change our attitude toward the wicked because of something we're going to learn longer term about the wicked in this passage. So number one is our attitude changes. Secondly, there is a reality about the wicked that will reveal itself that makes that attitude worth holding. So in verses two, in verse two, and a bunch of other verses that go with it, verse two, I'll read them in a second. Verse two, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Verse 9, for evildoers shall be cut off. Verse 10, yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Verse 12, the wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. And, And if you think that's strange language, it is. It's metaphorical, and it's using animals as the metaphor and it's used throughout the Old Testament all the time, it's not talking about someone literally chewing on you with their teeth. It's talking about people who curse you with their mouth. They're cursing the righteous with their mouth. They're speaking badly of you, and they're gnashing. That's what it means by gnashing on you with their teeth in the same idea. Verse 13, what comes as a consequence of this? While the wicked is plotting against the righteous and chewing on him with his mouth, with his words, the Lord is laughing at the wicked because the Lord knows the day of the wicked is coming. His judgment is coming, and he's going to be cut off. He's not even going to be there anymore. We're stressed out about it. How can these people get away with what they're getting away with? And the Lord says to us, don't fret. I see what's happening. I'm already laughing at them because I can see what's coming their way. So relax a little bit. Our attitude toward the wicked changes because there's a reality about the wicked that we ought to know that the Lord does know, and that affects our attitude toward Yahweh himself. And so in verse 3, we're supposed to trust in the Lord. 
If I had time, I would show you how this, just these first three verses really give you the structure of the whole psalm too. But uh, you'll see that kind of if you think about it as we're going through it anyway. But in verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord. In verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He shall bring it to pass. In verse 7, rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. We'll talk a lot more about trusting Him, waiting in Him, and knowing that He's going to make things right as we go through the rest of the psalm. But you see, our attitude toward Yahweh changes, which explains why our attitude toward the wicked should change, because we understand who Yahweh is. Next is a reality about us. And I mean us not because we're so distinct from everyone else, but because if we put our trust in Christ as Savior, we are the sanctified. We are the ones who are set apart for Him. It doesn't make us better in our behavior than everyone else somehow inherently, but we are supposed to be different because Christ lives in us and through us. And so we're declared righteous. Not just declared it, but declared righteous and then supposed to demonstrate that in the way we live. So I talk, start speaking about the righteous and what should be true about the righteous. Verse 4, at the end of the verse, Remember we said, delight yourself also in the Lord, the beginning of the verse. Verse 4, the last half is, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is what Yahweh is doing for those who are righteous in contrast to the wicked. This is all just the first section of the psalm. Verse 6, he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice like a noonday. Verse 9, the last half of the verse, those who wait on the Lord in contrast to the wicked, they shall inherit the earth. You recognize this. You recognize that phrasing from the Sermon on the Mount. We'll come back to the Sermon on the Mount. This is why we read the Beatitudes a moment ago. They shall inherit the earth. Verse 10, the last half of the verse. Indeed, you will look carefully for his, the wicked's, place, but, but it won't even be there. It won't be there anymore. But the meek shall inherit the earth. In verse 11, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The beatitudes that are given to us by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount rest a lot on the ideas that are in this psalm. The actual phrases that are in the psalm, the meek shall inherit the earth, are in the beatitudes, but the whole idea of it, including the peacemakers and those who are blessed by God because they've been set apart by Him as peacemakers. So, in those Beatitudes that we read at the beginning of the sermon, you hear those words, and the contrasts that are given there are between what we are now, we're blessed are those who are poor, for instance. I know, poor but in the Spirit. That's how he describes them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But he's describing people who are doing without in this life because they're committed to the Spirit of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've put our hope in something different from that. And so when he says, blessed are the meek, he doesn't say, because they own everything, because they're prosperous, because they make, he says, because they will inherit the earth. And the nature of this psalm, I mean, of the Beatitudes, that poem, the Beatitudes are a poem in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives, the, the whole point of that poem, that little section of the Beatitudes, is to create that contrast between those who are acting obediently to God right now, but doing without, so that they're poor, but they have the kingdom of God. They're hungering and thirsting, to get to the last phrase in that first section, they're hungering and thirsting, 
but they will receive righteousness. They will receive the thing that they're thirsting after. We're doing without right now. In the same way, we're doing things that demonstrate an attitude that's committed to that kingdom, the one that will come. And we're able to do that because we know in that reality we can wait for the Lord to do the things that have to do with the wicked. In other words, there is a stability, there is a constancy to those who are walking with God that will not be true about the wicked. They are, in, in the words that are used throughout the New Testament about them, tossed about with every wave. They are driven about by the winds like clouds that promise to bring rain but never do. They're just driven around. That's how the wicked are, but the righteous are not like that. We are consistently following Yahweh because we know that in resting on Him, He will bring the reward. He does provide the kingdom that is right now. And so it concludes with those last statements in verses 14 and 15, this section, because the wicked in this, you know, in this passage, Yahweh is seeing this. We're supposed to have a different attitude towards them because what Yahweh can see is what we need to see, and that is that while they're shooting their arrows at us, while they're trying to bring destruction to everyone else, all they're actually working is destruction on themselves. It's, it's a little like Sisyphus, but he doesn't get out of the way of his own stone. He's rolling it up the hill as a trap for everyone else, and it rolls back on them. The Proverbs describe that. So he's just applying that here to the wicked. In verse 14, the wicked have drawn the sword first, and they have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy and to slay those who are actually doing what's right. But verse 15 their sword that they've drawn against everyone else will enter their own heart. And their bows are going to be broken so that they're not effective. The whole point of this is that God brings it back on them, the very thing that they have planned against us. The first section of the psalm is fairly straightforward, but you can understand now why I put the phrase on it that truth, reality, returns to the wicked. They are making their plans and thinking they can overcome everyone else in reality, no matter what they put out there to take control of the world around them, it's going to come back on their own head. They've dug a deep hole for everyone else to fall into, and it turns out to be their own grave. This is what we should remember, that when we're evaluating our walk with God in comparison with those who look like they're running the world and winning by cheating, that we're supposed to have confidence that God knows what they're doing. And one day, that giant hole they dug that you feel like you're trapped in, God will have you out of it, and they will fall into it. This is what he describes, okay? Second section of the psalm, starting in verse 16. This is a confusing truth, and it, you know, it, it sounds so absolutish. People will pull this out and think, does David really mean that? The little section, for instance, where he says, I've never seen the righteous begging for bread. We know that's not true. David knelt in a city and begged for bread himself when he was doing the right thing. We know he has seen people beg for bread. So why on earth is he saying this in this psalm? The more important question that we probably ought to be asking is, why would he be saying it even if he had never seen it? Why would he be communicating this to the congregation? Because he knows they see it. He knows the righteous suffer. What he's addressing is what's going to happen forever. 
And so there is this confusing truth about the righteous. God never turns his back on the righteous. And yet we see the righteous suffer. What's going on with them? And that is that truth, the point of this section of the psalm, is that truth will arrive. Truth arrives for the righteous. It returns on the wicked, but it arrives for the righteous. And you can tell that by the way this part of the psalm is written because everything that's in contrast here, everything in contrast in the first part of the psalm is simply there's the righteous and the wicked and Yahweh is going to cause them to perish no matter what and we're safe because we are going to inherit the earth and he sees our righteousness and all of that's going on. The contrast is mainly between the wicked and the righteous. The main contrast in this part of the psalm is between the present and the future, the things that are happening now and the things that are going to happen in the future. And so the way the future, the present is described, a little in verse 16, a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. This is a very confusing statement. In the present, but this is the reality of the present. The righteous man is described as having a penury, having a tiny bit. And the wicked man is described as having great riches. And yet he says, well, you're better off with the tiny bit that you have, the penury that you're in, than the wealth that the wicked man is in. Well, that sounds nice, but I mean when you're hungry and going to sleep, it's not that helpful. So in verse 16, all of these verses that I'm about to read you follow this same thing, but they all incline us to say there must be something that makes this little bit that I have right now that I've given up the wealth because I chose not to follow the way of the wicked. I've given up this prosperity, but this little is worth it for some reason. And so in verse 16, he starts to explain that. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. Verse 21, the wicked borrows and does not repay. This is how aggrandizing the wicked are in the world. They borrow what's not rightfully theirs to begin with, and then they never give it back. You know, it's like they enter into the deal and they cheat someone out of their part of the deal. They borrow the money on the promise that they're going to pay it back, but they never pay it back. So this is the wicked man. He's aggrandizing power and possessions for himself in the world, but the righteous is the opposite. He doesn't just lend. He shows mercy and gives away. Remember, he already had little. He's giving away what little he has. Remember the widow that cast her money into the box, the offering box outside the temple? The wicked borrows and doesn't repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. Verse 23, the steps of a good man, they are ordered by the Lord, and and the Lord delights in his way. In verse 24, even though he falls, he will not be cast down because the Lord upholds him with his hand. And that... That tells you the context in which we're supposed to read all of this section. He doesn't say the righteous never falls. He says when the righteous falls, the Lord will hold him up with his hand. That there's a big difference between that and the idea that we never fall, that we never struggle. The Lord upholds him with his hand. That's in the present. That's what's going on. In eternity, here's what he describes, verse 17. The arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Verse 18, 
The Lord knows the days of the upright. He knows each of their days and watches them. And their inheritance shall be forever. When Israel speaks, when the Old Testament speaks, when the Psalms speak of eternity, they do it by speaking of the inheritance of the land, the generations that will follow, those who will receive the kingdom. For instance, your son will sit on the throne forever. It's about the generations that come after you, and yet the promises are intended to tell us that God is doing something for them that lasts forever. And so these ideas are there too. The inheritance will be forever. Verse 19, they shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked, verse 20, they shall perish. They cease to be. And in the days of famine, verse 20, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, they'll vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. That's the context in which he gives us now, verses 25 and 26. I have been young, and now I'm old, and I have not seen the righteous, doesn't, not just they never suffered, but I've never seen them forsaken, nor have I seen his inheritance, his descendants, begging bread. He is Yahweh, ever merciful, therefore the righteous are ever merciful, and they lend, and his descendants are blessed. In his giving away, Yahweh returns his prosperity to him. He gives away everything that he has, and yet it returns to him. It arrives for him that he is blessed. On my way here, uh, there were some, I think, stratus clouds. I'm not the best at identifying different kinds of clouds. I just want clouds to be out of the way. I like to do astrophotography, and their clouds are no good for that. So, but, but I think these were stratus clouds that, that were up in, the, in uh, high, not cirrus clouds. They were thicker than that. Uh, but above, uh, you know, above the, the, the place where you'd have the cumulus clouds, the little puffy clouds that you see. And they were slightly translucent, right? So as I'm driving east out of Dallas to come to Kilgore, to come to, ooh, that's not where I came. I came to Liberty City. I don't know if y'all say there's a difference or not, but you know you're really close to Kilgore, but way better. Is that, am I okay now? Okay, so anyway. Uh, so as I'm driving east from Dallas, I can say you're way better than Dallas. So as I'm driving east from Dallas, uh, the sun, you know, the sun's right in front of me. And normally it's right in my eyes most of the way here. I put on my sunglasses. But this morning it wasn't because of the clouds. And I noticed that as the sun started to rise, there was a little set of clouds, translucent clouds, that were so bright you couldn't even look at them. They were all that you could see. And then I realized that just above them, the clouds were just dense enough, just thick enough, and they were slightly darker that you could see the actual disk of the sun. You know what I'm talking about? Every once in a while you have clouds that are just the right density so that you can actually see the shape of the sun behind them. And then you realize, by the way, that's the only time you ever see the sun with your, with your naked eyes, that it actually looks like the size that it is in the sky, which is exactly the same size as the moon. And I mean exactly, like 30 minutes across, you know, half a degree across. You know what I'm talking about? It's exactly the same size. Have you all seen that when you're looking through the clouds and you see the sun like that? Okay, so as I was looking at it this morning, the sun, it's white disk, just barely visible, but plainly visible behind that set of dark clouds 
was way dimmer. It was almost hard for me to see it because the way it was illuminating the ice crystals in the clouds that were below it was so bright that I couldn't see the sun. Now, look, the clouds that are there, first of all, don't have any light of their own. The clouds that were so bright that I could not look straight at them were simply refracting the light that the sun was putting through them. But they were all that I could see until I looked really hard and realized that there was this little moon-sized object behind the clouds that was the sun itself. And I know that's the source of the light, and I know when those clouds are gone, the sun is still going to be there. But the only thing that could catch my eye immediately when I looked out my windshield was the brightness of those clouds that were blocking the sun to begin with. That's how we look at the wicked. They are so prominent in our lives. If you're an employee and you work for someone who is crooked, it is the only thing you can see in your life. It is so bright, so prominent, it blinds you to everything else. But the sun, literally out my windshield, is 93 million miles further away and so much greater than not just that cloud, but the entire earth and thousands of earths beyond it. When we're looking at the wicked, we think that's what matters in the world. And what God is constantly telling us is, no, that's nothing. If you think they're bright, if you think they're illuminated, if you think what they have matters, wait until you get past them to the eternity that is beyond it. When I drove another five minutes, I was going to look back to see it because in seeing it, I thought, oh, that's a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about. So I thought, I'm going to look back to see it. Clouds were gone. Clear sky, sun shining, can't see the sun. All you can see is the glare that is where the sun is and that you don't stare at, right, with your naked eye because I'm not a fool. I know we're not going to do that. But I'm saying the clouds are just gone. That's how this describes the wicked. They're the only thing you can see and then they're just gone. He uses the illustration of the, the meadow and the, the flowers. They bloom. They're so pretty. And then October comes, and they're just gone. They're just not there anymore. So we, we set our frame to, to fret about how prosperous the wicked are and why God doesn't bless the things that I'm doing that are right. And he says, the meek will inherit the earth. The wicked, you'll look for where they were. You inherit the whole earth. You look for where the wicked used to be, and you can't even find the hole in the ground they used to occupy. That's the contrast that he gives. And what we come to in the close, in verses 27 through 40, is this. Now, just to read it, I don't think I read verses 25 and 26. So when he says, I have been young and now I'm old, He's saying, I've seen these things. I've seen the wicked. I've seen where they are. But I've also seen that the righteous are never forsaken, that his descendants do not beg bread, that he, this righteous man, chooses to be merciful and to give his things away. And because of that, God returns those blessings on his descendants. Now verses 27 through 40. And this is the truth that they have in common. If we changed the illustration about the clouds, the reality that part of the clouds were illuminated so brightly and part of the clouds were dim, we think of for ourselves. We like to think of ourselves as being so righteous 
that we can't be compared with the wicked who are around us. We are the candles shining in darkness among the people of the opposite political party, you know? So the light comes through us. We think of ourselves as the bright part of the cloud. But the reality is, I mean, I looked at the clouds, and yeah, there was a bright part and there was a dark part, but they're made of exactly the same thing. The same ice crystals, the same water molecules, the same dust that gathers around, that those molecules gather around. They're made of exactly the same thing, and that's how this psalm is going to close for us with a recognition that all of that reality, all of that truth comes not from the difference between us. So if you're meek enough, you'll inherit the earth. If you're wicked enough, you'll perish. It all comes from Yahweh. It all comes from the Lord. The Lord is the one who returns to both the things that are right. And so in verse 40, that's what we're going to see. The Lord helps those and delivers them. In verse 40, he goes on to say, he will deliver them from the wicked and save them, and not because they are righteous this time, but because they trust in him. And what is it that we do? You know, what is it that, if you describe us as righteous, what is it that, that sets us apart? Look at, verse, look at how he starts this section in verse 27. He doesn't say to the righteous, continue to be better than those pigs around you. He doesn't say that. He says, depart from evil. And that's not just evil people. That's us repenting. That's why he says, depart from evil and do good. And then he'll go on to say, as we'll read in a moment, and dwell forevermore. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, I mentioned to you a moment ago, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus gets ready to close the Sermon on the Mount, uh, at the opening of his ministry, he makes this statement that we're all familiar with, enter in at the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. You're familiar with this. And there are many who, and hear this, there are many who go into it. There are many who go in thereat, right? And then he says, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and few there are who, and we just glibly go through it thinking that what he has said is who go in there you know many there are who go in the broad way that leads to destruction but few there are who go into the narrow way that leads to life that's not what he says he makes a deliberate contrast between the two saying broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there are who go in there they're already on that path all of us are already on that path the wicked just continue to go down the path that they were on, and they go into the way of destruction. But what he says is, narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there are who find it. Hurisco in the New Testament, he says. Not few there are who go into it. There are few who go into it as well. But it's not just a passive event. It's not, some people were on the path to destruction, and that's where they went in, and some people were on the path to righteousness, and that's where they went in. That's not how it goes. There is a path to destruction, and people just go in there. You don't have to find it. You're already on that path. There is a path to righteousness, but it doesn't just emerge. We have the responsibility for one, to share it with others, to show it to them so that they can find it. But his action is not describing soteriology here. It's describing a reality about all of us. We're already on the path to destruction going toward our, our perishing. 
And what he wants us to do is get off that path and onto the path of righteousness. And that's why the words here in verse 27 are, depart from evil. You're already on the path that would lead you to be just like those who are going to face destruction. Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. That's why in verse 28, he begins the verse by saying, because the Lord loves justice, righteousness. And he's going to go on to say he doesn't forsake his saints. In verse 30, it's why he says, the mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice, because something changed in our lives. This is the call to repentance. This is David in the psalm saying, don't think you have this magic act where you say, I was born of Abraham, therefore I am righteous. We're all on the path to destruction until we repent. We turn from our evil and we trust Christ as our Savior. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he transforms then the way that we live. And for a person to say, oh, I'm going to heaven when I die. Everything's good with me. And your life's never been changed by God? You're fooling yourself. God is not so weak that you said a prayer at some point in your life, and then he went, wow, I I wish I could change that person's life, but I just don't have the power to do it. I wish I could actually make them live differently, but, you know, my Holy Spirit's only got so much gumption. He's just not willing to fight that person enough to get them right with God. If your life is not different, if something hasn't changed in the way you're following Christ in this world, then you need to look at yourself and say, wait, wait, which which of these paths am I on? Not saying to you, you know, you better live well enough to go to heaven because if I was saying that, we'd all be going to hell. Literally, I mean it every one of us. We can't live it well enough. And yet somehow he transforms us so that the righteous actually loves justice. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom. His tongue talks of justice. The law of God in verse 31 is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. We could spend a day talking about the transformation from his law being written on stone to this kind of person where God's law is written in our hearts because we've been transformed. Verse 34, then he says, so wait on the Lord and keep his way, his path. That's the one we're on. Verse 37, and pay attention to, mark the blameless man and observe the upright because the future of that man is peace. He's the one who brings peace, and he's the one who will experience peace because he's on a different path than he was before. So we repent. What happens to the wicked? They don't repent. They're on their path to destruction, which, remember, is a path to destruction not because God has set a trap at the end of it, but because the wicked who are walking that path have set traps for everyone else. They have set the traps and said, I'm going to take over the world. I'm going to own this county. I'm going to manipulate others to control the world for me. I'm going to do all of that, and they fall into their own destruction. And so, on the way to their destruction, they watch the righteous in verse 32, and they seek to slay the righteous. They don't repent. They stay on their path at the cost of others, but to their own destruction. And where does all of that truth and reality come from? From the Lord. 
He's the one who preserves the righteous. Listen to the promises that are given to us. The last half of verse 27, we dwell forevermore. The last half of verse 28, the Lord does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked are cut off. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Verse 33, while the wicked are watching and seeking to slay, the Lord will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he is judged. In verse 34, the last half of the verse, he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. Verse 39, but the salvation of the righteous is from their works. How good they are? New. From the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and he shall save them. And then we'll read the last phrase in a moment. So he preserves for the righteous the blessing, but he also preserves for the wicked their justice, their judgment. Verse 35, I've seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Verse 36, yet he passed away and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him and I couldn't even find him. Verse 38, but the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. What's the difference? What's our repentance? Our repentance is taking refuge in him. The difference is that we trust the Lord. That when everyone else uses their own power to build the world to their advantage, which only brings their destruction, we bow before the Lord and confess him as Lord and trust him as our only hope. And even when we have little in this life because we've chosen the Lord, we know that it's more because the righteous, the meek, inherit the earth. What makes them righteous? Verse 40, the very end of the verse, because they trust in him. That's what I ask you to do. Look beyond the glare of the wicked who are in front of you. Look beyond the things that look so permanently to block the sun in the sky and see that the clouds will turn to vapor and disappear and the sun will be shining in eternity. We put our trust in him, the one who for eternity makes things right for all of us. Father, I pray that you would turn our hearts to trust in you and to find our refuge in you. I pray that we would remember that while the wicked are building the world for them, they're really building their own destruction in it. And I pray that we would remember that while we are giving away all of the blessings that you've given us, even when they're small, when we're giving those away, you are storing it up to return to us and to multiply it. I pray that in remembering that you return righteousness to this earth in judgment on the wicked, in blessing on the righteous, that we would learn to turn to you and trust you to forgive us for our wickedness and preserve us for your righteousness. And with heads bowed and eyes closed, I ask you this morning first, do you know Christ as your Savior? Because when we trust in him, 
It is in His Son, Jesus Christ, that we place our trust. We come to Him because He came into this world humbling Himself, giving away what was rightfully His in heaven for eternity, giving it away to walk among us, to become a man, to suffer death on our behalf so that we would not have to face that. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior today, I'll be standing down here at the front row. I just ask you to come and take me by the hand and say, hey, I, I, need, to, I need to find Christ. I need to meet him. I want to talk to you about what you mentioned. I'll know how to talk to you about it. I just want you to come and say yes to him. If you don't know Christ as your Savior right now, today, put your trust in him as your Savior. If you know him as your Savior, I'm begging you as a believer to demonstrate in your own faith and faithfulness, to demonstrate in your kindness to the people who are around you, in your willingness to give to people who don't even deserve it, your confidence that the Lord will bring everything right back into this world. Father, make us more like you today. If you need to pray at this altar, it'll be open to you. If you need to come and pray with one of us down here at the front, we're here and available to you. Whatever it is you need, as we sing, you come. Would you join me standing, please?